Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, it's Maddie. I'm just jumping in to let you know that this episode contains some sensitive content. So if that's not for you, check out our back catalogue of amazing episodes. And if you're sticking with us, enjoy. London, 1605, November the 5th. Out on the city streets, the air has turned resolutely cold. The nights have been creeping in, enveloping the ever shorter days, so that London's inhabitants are forced to huddle in doorways and, if they're lucky, rush home to glowing coals and a warm meal. Despite the seasonal chill, at Westminster, preparations are underway for the state opening of Parliament. Servants bustle back and forth as politicians arrive to take their places. Soon, the King himself will be there. But we're not at street level to witness this ceremonial circus. Instead, we're several feet lower, standing in an icy, vaulted space, a cellar of sorts. It's damp, the smell of it lingers in the nostrils and settles on the hair. The only light to pierce the darkness comes from a small lantern, its dull flicker just enough to illuminate our companion. He's of average height and build, though the broad cloak slumped about his shoulder lends him an intimidating air. Beneath the broad-rimmed hat, pulled low over his brow, are dark curls that tangle and weave with a beard of similar length. He's unsettled. His foot taps against the stone floor. Though he remains as still as possible, a lone watchman standing in front of what? Looming behind us in the murk and packed to the ceiling are large wooden barrels, their metal bands winking now and then under the lantern's glare. Though our man takes special care, the flame never gets too close. And with good reason. Inside, each vessel is filled with gunpowder. One spark could ignite it all, obliterating with it the very foundations of British state power and sending its major players straight into the heavens. Fifth of November. Hello and welcome to After Dark Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal in a gender role reversal. I am today Dr. Maddie Pelling. And I'm Dr. Anthony Delaney. <laughs> and boy, do we have an explosive episode for you. But before we descend into that parliamentarian vault that Maddie was describing at the outset and, and we seek to uncover some of the most infamous and vilified figures of British history within its shadows, let me first introduce our guest. Today, we are joined by the historian and author Stephen Virappen. Stephen has written a staggering number of fiction and non-fiction works, including novels set amid the political intrigue and dangerous courtly worlds of the 1500s and a biography of King James VI and First 
about whom I'm sure we'll be speaking about today. So Stephen, first things first, welcome to After Dark. Thank you very much for having me. And I, can I just say, I really appreciate the gender role reversals. That's very Shakespearean, <laughs> fits very well. Okay, so we need to sort of set the scene, I guess, a little bit in terms of the beginning of the 17th century and the gunpowder plot. So Stephen, I'm sure you're very familiar with the gunpowder plot. So I'm actually going to go to Anthony first and ask him a little historian's quiz. What do you know about the gunpowder plot? <laughs> I know a rhyme that I uh, <laughs> it's a great explored start. briefly. What else do I know? Uh, the, the names Catesby come to mind. Obviously, Guy Fawkes. So I'm sure we're going to meet both of those figures in a little bit more detail as this episode goes on. I seem to recall, and I don't know why this number has stuck with me, but 34 barrels of gunpowder were, were deposited under the Houses of Parliament. Maddie is, for those who can't see, Maddie is going side to side with her head. I've, I've made some kind of historical faux pas there, but we'll, <laughs> again, we'll come to that. I, I, think, um, I think it's 36. But, you know, I'm no mathematician. Stephen, is it 36? Correct us. 36, <laughs> yes. I have seen it given in some places as 38, but 36 is the most commonly reported number. I mean, I think 34 would, would have done the job very well yeah, had it I'm been just, ignited. You know, cost of living prices, <laughs> I'm trying to cut down on the, the, the cost of gunpowder. And, and yes, I guess the aim was a Catholic plot against the Protestant establishment and even some of the Calvinist influences that were coming down into England from Scotland with the the reign of James VI and first. Okay, how did I do? Give me a percentage, Maddie. Well, as if, <laughs> actually, Stephen, you probably need to give me the percentage. Yeah, let's, let's hear from Stephen now. Stephen, tell us a little bit about what's happening at the start of the 17th century, because I think it's it's such an interesting moment of change and flux across Britain. And of course, we have a new monarch. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I think what's really interesting about King James becoming King of England is that quite a few birds came home to roost due to what James had been promising and what James had been claiming to, to everyone in his bid for the English throne. James spent 36 years of his life really waiting to become King of England, desperate to become King of England. And during his reign in Scotland, he was keen to be all things to all men. He really wanted to minimise potential opposition. This meant quite a lot of promises were made to Catholics about toleration, about better things to come. So people were really looking forward to James's reign on both sides, I think. I mean, the more puritanical Protestants were looking forward to James becoming king because they thought, great, we'll get the increase in reform that we want, we can become, as Anthony said, more Calvinist, we can become more like that, we can have a purer church. The Catholics, on the other hand, were thinking, great, it's the son of the martyred Mary Queen of Scots, he'll be sympathetic towards us, we will have a better time. James, however, when he actually became king, having made all these promises, was really keen to establish himself as kind of the continuity candidate for England. Mm. Uh, he actually said something along the lines of, I'm very blessed amongst English kings to come to the throne and not have to make any changes at all. Uh, so that was a positive for him. It wasn't for anyone else. Yeah, I think that's, it's so interesting, isn't it? That for the Catholics who, you know, let's not forget under Elizabeth the I, they've been marginalised, they've been persecuted and they really find themselves on the edge of society, you know, worshipping in secret. Uh, Elizabeth has a, a sort of dedicated, it's almost a secret spy service, isn't it, Stephen, to, to catch Catholics sort of at it. And there's a feeling, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a feeling of hopefulness potentially when James does take the English throne that things are going to get better for the Catholics. And it never really, never really arrives, I suppose. And we can see that potentially as the, the seeds being sown for the, the plotters, that they see this opportunity for change and for Catholicism to be reinstated as a, a respectable thing within society, within English society. And when that doesn't happen, those resentments start to bubble, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think um, James, I suppose, in trying to please everyone, ended up just disappointing more people. And it became a question of who's going to break first. Is it going to be the Catholics or is it going to be the, the more puritanical wing of Protestants that break first? I think a lot of people have 
this idea, certainly of the portrait of James the Sixth and First, that that's kind of iconic and that a lot of people might be familiar with. But tell us a little bit about the man himself, Stephen. What what is he bringing to the throne? How is he going to approach this? You talked about him not wanting to change things too much, but give us a bit of a broader stroke about what he is, how he is received and what he's bringing to the throne at this time. Well, James's big selling point and one that he was always really, really keen on was being presented as a patriarch, as a, a dynastic candidate. Elizabeth I had obviously been the Virgin Queen. She'd had no children. People wanted a king. They wanted a man in charge. And they wanted a man who had children in charge. This was a huge selling point. And James was really keen on promoting that. So he was met with all kinds of acclamation from people. And I think it's very easy. I, I've given an impression there that everyone was just wanting change. I should point out I'm sure the vast majority were perfectly happy with continuity. It was these extremes that that were really unhappy. It's interesting, that word extreme. And I think there's something to be said about the plotters themselves. They they are sort of radical extremists in one sense. Uh, They are devoutly religious and it's that devout religious belief and conviction that leads them to create the plot in the first place. So we've got James on the throne on the one hand. Now, let's talk about the plotters themselves. We've got, so the names that I know that we sort of, you know, we get taught in school, they're part of the nursery rhymes. We've got Robert Catesby, of course, we've got Guy Fawkes, and he has become the figure to which this story is attached. And we can talk about maybe just how central or, or otherwise that he is. Other names, we've got Thomas Winter, we've got Thomas Percy, Anthony, do you know any others? Uh, no, because <laughs> we don't get taught this in Ireland. Not surprising. Yeah, yeah. We we don't have bonfire night. We don't have the 5th of November thing. We do our bonfires on Halloween night. So actually, while we're aware it's happening, it's you know, we often talk about the kind of reverse where people in Britain are not necessarily aware of the Irish history or the impact of the British Empire on Irish history. But actually we often come up against these things such as the the gunpowder plot and go, so? So no, I can't. I can't give you any more names, sorry. (laughs) Well, no, Anthony, I think that's a really important point that other countries must look at England, Scotland, at at the UK, I suppose, and think, why this event? Why all these Mm. centuries later is this event still celebrated with fireworks and things? It's, It's... a question I can't actually answer. I don't know why. I mean, nothing happened. It was averted. The plot failed. And yet we still have Burning the Guy and Guy Fawkes and fireworks, all of this sort of stuff. And it's it's not even the only Catholic plot against the, the English or the British crown to take place in the 17th century or indeed the 16th century. You know, it's, it's so fascinating that this one is the one that endures in our imagination. I suppose part of that may be the ambition of the plot itself. So the plotters decide that they are going to blow up the Houses of Parliament, which is a pretty big deal. And they pick the state opening day, so a day traditionally when obviously the king will be there. I think the heir is traditionally there as well. So does James have an heir at this point? Is there someone to inherit his his throne? Yes, James's son, Prince Henry, who would almost certainly have been there because he was the Prince of Wales. But I think you're quite right, Maddie, in that there had been plots against individual monarchs before. There had been plots against James before. Um, There had been plots against Elizabeth. But this was something bigger. This was a massive terrorist act, really, that was being plotted. Yeah, I think it's fair to call it that. And, you know, had it succeeded, it would have wiped out the, the monarch, the heir to the throne, and also pretty much all of the people in charge of running the state at that time. So it would have completely, yeah, yeah. yeah, it would have removed the whole of of British government, the people in charge. Oh, well, that's actually an interesting, an interesting point. It would have been uh, the English government, but not the Scottish government at the time. And that's something the plotters, I don't think, really cared about or thought about. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have registered with them, does it? It just, it's, there, there is this real focus on Englishness. And actually, I was wondering, as you were talking earlier, Stephen, about that link with Mary, Queen of Scots and the kind of residual, uh, I guess, romanticising of of Scotland and Catholicism, which actually is probably not standing up to scrutiny at all in, in reality, but just in the popular imagination. I'm wondering if that's playing a little bit of a part there. Yeah, I think what really bothered the powder plotters or what they used as an excuse was the idea that this Scottish king 
had come and taken over and brought with him a gaggle of what were perceived as beggarly Scots taking up government positions and things, taking up uh, political positions. Uh, Guy Fawkes, when he was interrogated, apparently said that one of the aims of the plot was to blow the Scottish beggars back to their native mountains. So there was quite a lot of xenophobia baked up in it. Mm, that's so interesting. And of course, James is perceived in England at this time as as being you know, the, the Scottish king who still believes in witches and witchcraft and has this fear of the supernatural. And, and I wonder if that English xenophobia, yeah, if it's, it's absolutely playing a part here. And of course, the, the plotters themselves have all these links to the Midlands, to Warwickshire, to Staffordshire. And the real, you know, the absolute geographical and sort of, I guess, Catholic heartland in England, which is so interesting. The other thing that I think is fascinating about this plot in particular and why why it stays in our imagination is the fact that it's the Houses of Parliament. And just coming back to that, thinking about the fact that this is not only a practical act that, as we say, will wipe out a huge portion of the English Parliament, at least, but it's such a sort of symbolic space in terms of sort of pomp and circumstance of the state. It's it's a, a performance, it's a ritual, essentially, the king coming and opening Parliament. And I, I wonder if we can say anything more about that, about the, the, the very act of trying to blow it up. It's such a terrorist act. It's such violence. That, that could potentially happen. Yes, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it was the home of the law courts, King's Bench, Common Pleas. It was the home of the government. It was where the, the parliament obviously sat. So this was a massive symbolic act as well. And I mean, if we look at terrorist acts in the modern world, we've all read about them. We've all experienced sort of media around them and things. And there's always that shock afterwards and misinformation flying around uh, and that was that was common in the uh, 17th century as well and I think that's what the plotters were really banking on is when this happens or will follow this period of complete chaos a complete power vacuum into which they could really well their plan was to substitute James's daughter Princess Elizabeth and use her as a puppet queen. Yeah, we'll get to that. I think chaos is absolutely the the key word here, that they don't necessarily think through the plot very well. The other thing that always fascinates me about this story is, you know, we think about the Houses of Parliament today and we think about this very 19th century neo-Gothic imposing building. But of course, at this time, it was really a warren of medieval buildings. And the fact that they were able to move all of that gunpowder to a cellar right under, I think it's the House of Lords, isn't it? And nobody batted an eyelid. That's remarkable. Yeah, these rooms were available for rent, these undercrofts and things, these spaces. Uh, they were public spaces. People could rent them out. They could lease them. Gunpowder itself, because James had ended the war with Spain, Queen Elizabeth I's Anglo-Spanish War, Gunpowder was there to be had in the southeast of England. I mean, people were selling it off relatively cheaply. So, yes, it was uh, almost remarkable in that this age of security, when you know, I mean, you know how difficult it is now to go through an airport and things like that. That was not the case in the 17th century. And I think because no one expected this kind of plot, this kind of massive plot, which is almost silly because James himself had kind of experience with gunpowder. His father's house had been blown up, uh, Mary Queen of Scots' husband, and uh, Darnley, his father, had been found strangled in the garden. So James was, he was not only no stranger to gunpowder as a plot, but he'd also faced a plot himself, the Gowrie conspiracy, when he was in Scotland in the sort of dying days of his, his time in Scotland. He'd faced a conspiracy. And what's really interesting about that is he had rushed after surviving it to what we now call control the narrative, you know, to get an official version of events. And we see the same thing then in the gunpowder plot. There is this attempt by the king to give the official version and to demand that everyone, as we've been doing for centuries, celebrates it, celebrates his deliverance and all of that sort of stuff. So James was no slouch when it came to not only surviving plots, but to writing up the official version in which he comes out smelling of roses. I think that's partially the answer, right? Is that this endures because the establishment the king wanted to endure and that narrative 
belongs to them and they sell it, they package it, they then feed it back to the people and, you know, eventually to us in a way that celebrates the establishment and celebrates the continuity of government and royal power. But you were both talking about this kind of warren of medieval buildings that are underneath the House of Lords. Maddie, I'm just wondering if you would be able to take us on our next part of the story to learn a little bit more about that location. Excavations under the warren of medieval buildings that made up the area around Parliament was begun by the plotters earlier that year. Together, they'd started to dig tunnels, unnoticed, close to the cellar that sat directly beneath the House of Lords. Fawkes was a key part of the operation, though his road to get there was perhaps unconventional for a religious martyr. Born in York in 1570, He'd been brought up as a Protestant, though he had converted to Catholicism by the time he'd enlisted as a mercenary to fight for the Spanish. On the battlefields of Europe, he learned skills that would, to the plotters, make him invaluable. An experienced soldier, Fawkes had worked, crucially, with explosives. By the autumn of 1605, the group had a lucky break. The cellar itself became available to rent. Fawkes took it on behalf of his master, Catesby. No questions were asked. And soon they began to move the barrels of gunpowder into place. Everything now seemed set. The only detail left was to pick a date for the execution of their daring plan. But it would not be long before fear and doubt would creep in and the cracks in this network of devout extremists begin to show. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. So we have this situation where this group of men have come together with this plan. But actually what I'm left wondering at this point, Stephen, and perhaps you can you can help us with this, could this have worked? And then the second part, the kind of follow-up to that is why didn't it? What went wrong? Um, yes, absolutely could have worked. I mean, they had the raw ingredients of it, but quite a lot of things seemed to go wrong for them, which, of course, the government was then able to interpret providentially. So, for example, it was never planned for the November of 1605. Parliament was supposed to meet much earlier. The plan was actually in place in about 1604, and for various reasons, plague being amongst them, the meeting of Parliament was delayed. And in that delay, that's when Catesby, who was really the... Catesby was the driving force. He was the charismatic leader of this. And initially, it involved his friends. It involved Thomas Winter. It involved John Wright. But then it started to widen to include Guy Fawkes as the munitions expert. And then it just kept widening. And of course, the more people that got involved the more potential there was really for it to leak out, which is 
perhaps what happened. And there did emerge stories from the interrogations that, as Maddie said, there was a, a tunnel being dug at one point. No one's ever been able to find evidence of that, I don't think. It's in the confessions, but it's debated whether that was the case or not. I feel like that's an Indiana Jones movie waiting to happen. Oh, yes. Indiana uh, Jones and the Parliamentary Tunnels. I would watch <laughs> it, yes. I think... Harrison Ford's probably got one more in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm free as a historical consultant, Harrison, <laughs> if you're listening. But uh, what we find is they are trying to almost coordinate this. So in the breathing space between Parliament being delayed and eventually being called to meet in 1605, Catesby is trying to build up support in the country amongst Catholic landowners and things, trying to really arrange an uprising. That is also a problem, though, because that is more people coming into this. I think that the almost canonical number is the unlucky 13, that there were an unlucky 13 conspirators. It was almost certainly more than that who knew about it. Definitely was. This, again, just was delay and was more people who might speak and who might talk. So it really became just a, a plot that could have worked if fewer people had known about it, if it was kept intimate, if it was kept quiet. I mean, when you look at successful acts, successful terrorist acts, I mean, they are successful because people aren't on to them, because those inside haven't leaked the information. Mm. There's something really interesting here about the the Catholicism of these networks. And I was reading somewhere that in terms of a sort of secret Catholic underground networks of, of worship, not necessarily of plots for treason, that uh, women played a huge part. And I wonder, you know, we remember these 13 possibly more um, male plotters, and I wonder how many of their wives, their sisters, their mothers were in on this as well. And also their priests. We know that a lot of these men ad admitted to the plot before it took place to their priests in confession. And whilst that is a sacred bond between the confessor and the confessee, I guess there's there's always a risk there, isn't there, that, that that information about the plan is going to leak out. Yes, absolutely. In fact, there is a, a theory, there are a lot of conspiratorial theories about the gunpowder plot. I think that's why it keeps it keeps people coming back for more because there are always new theories developing about it. And one of them is that a wife of one of the conspirators might have written the famous Montego letter, which really, in the official version, gave the government the heads up that something was going on. There was this letter sent to Lord Montego warning him not to go to Parliament on November the 5th because a terrible blow would occur. And he immediately took it to Robert Cecil, who was James's Secretary of State. It has been theorised that perhaps a wife of a conspirator wrote it. It has been theorised and was suspected by the conspirators at the time that Francis Tresham, one of their number, had written it. In truth, no one actually knows who wrote this letter. It's even been theorised that Cecil wrote it himself because he knew all about the conspiracy and wanted to... Uh, have an official reason to reveal it. It's it's so exciting. And I think you're right. That's why people come back to this story, I guess, because there are so many levels of conspiracy of people plotting against each it's other. A conspiracy within a conspiracy, yeah. It totally is, yeah. And there's there's, you know, people constantly working to hide their own actions and to misdirect and misinform. And it's so hard in the archival record to unpick some of that. And of course, a lot of the time the evidence just doesn't exist anymore it was destroyed at the time or you know in the centuries since so we have this letter that's sent in the end to the king and the king is informed that there is potentially possibly this possibly happened and I've, I've read as well that there's a sort of theory amongst some historians then that the plot was allowed to play out as a way of capturing the people involved and I just find this slightly difficult to believe when we think about that cellar being full at the end, in 36, with 36 barrels of gunpowder, and nobody noticed. And there is actually a security sweep close to the, the opening of Parliament, isn't there? There's yes, at least and they, one see, where... they see Guy Fawkes. And that, this is, again, in the official version of events, everyone is an idiot except James, which should raise questions. In the official version, Cecil doesn't really understand what a terrible blow might mean. Monteagle doesn't understand it. Uh, when Monteagle and Suffolk search the Houses of Parliament, they see someone acting shiftily in the Undercroft. 
don't know what it means. We'll better go back to the king and ask if he has any ideas. And of course, James reads the letter and immediately realises, ah, it's gunpowder. It must be gunpowder. And that's how Guy Fawkes is discovered. But once again, that is an example probably of the official line being, how great is the king? How intelligent is the king? And again, James had tried that in Scotland with the Gowrie conspiracy. His version of events was full of holes, but he emerges from it as this great intelligent hero. I think people underestimate James VI and I at their kind of peril because he has a lot going on for him. And it's it's one of those things that I think people can gloss over him slightly, particularly between Elizabeth and Charles I, where he is actually holding court in a very, yeah, there's there's criticism, but he's 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 actually quite a canny individual in, in a lot of different ways. But I had a question. Again, from somebody who is has not grown up with this history, but why then, if you know you're describing this kind of large cabal of of Catholics who are planning an extremist act, why are we left with Guy Fawkes as the? I mean, I would never have heard of Catesby until I actually started studying history. So why are we left with Guy Fawkes and not one of the others as the prominent figure, Stephen? Do you think? Well, that is one of those questions that I think sometimes annoys historians it's not the question sorry but the, the fact that it's known as uh, Guy Fox, the Guy Fox conspiracy Guy Fox night when he was really a kind of minor player compared to Catesby who was the leader I think the reason for Guy Fox is just that iconic scene that the government wrote of him being discovered tending to the gunpowder watching over the gunpowder it's, it's cinematic I mean it's a really cinematic moment He must have been a really incredible person and with a really keen religious conviction. You know, he's the one who, whilst all of his fellow plotters have at this point removed themselves to the Midlands to carry out the second part of the plot, which we'll get to in a moment, he's the one who stood in that vault with a long line fuse and a lantern, potentially ready to blow himself up, there are historians who talk about the fact he's described when he's captured as he's wearing his spurs for, you know, presumably to ride a horse. So maybe he's planning to escape to the Midlands as well. But he's there. He's the one taking the risk and he is the one that's captured. And I think he must have been a very, whatever we think of what he was planning, he must have been a very captivating and charismatic person with with real courage, I think, even if that was misdirected. I think so, yes. And he demonstrated that when he was interrogated by James personally. I mean, James always took a a keen interest in in people that were trying to kill him. And he interrogated Fox and Fox said such a a widespreading disease deserves a sharp remedy. I mean, he he was proud of what he had been attempting. He did crumble under torture. There's a very famous comparison of his signature before he'd been tortured, which is very firm, signing his name, and then afterwards when it's this scribble. We'll get to that point because we are are going to come on to that in more detail. Let's just talk a little bit about, so on the one hand, we've got the plot to blow up Parliament in London. We have Guy Fawkes ready to ignite the fuse under the vault. We also have the plot that's going on in the Midlands. Can you explain a little bit about that? Because it involved James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, correct? Yes, Princess Elizabeth was being brought up in Warwickshire. She had no knowledge of this. In fact, in the aftermath, she said she would rather have died in an explosion than be used by these treacherous rebels. But for some reason known only to them, the conspirators thought she would be a really useful puppet. And I suppose the idea was to keep a sense of royal continuity. We've got rid of the king, we've got rid of the heir, but we have this spare royal who can be set up in their place and keep a sense of continuity going. What is bizarre to me anyway is the conspirators knew about the Montego letter, they knew the government had got hold of it. Also bizarre is that the government waited days, there was a period of about five days when they had this evidence, they had this letter and they didn't or seemed to not be acting. Knowing this the conspirators just continued playing. It's almost as if they were thinking, well, we know the government has this letter threatening a terrible blow, but they might not work out what it means. So let's just keep going. Let's ride off to Warwickshire and get the other part moving. It doesn't seem like the greatest plan, really, does it? It's it's not particularly well thought through. Uh, uh, What I think they'd hoped for 
is obviously that there would be some mass Catholic uprising supporting them. And what's, it's almost kind of tragic for Catesby. I mean, obviously a terrible thing he was plotting, but there's a tragic element to it really when when Fox had been arrested, when it was clear it had failed, he was off riding through the country, but he was eventually informed and told it, it's not worked. Fox has been arrested, the parliament has not been blown up, and Catesby still tried to rouse the, this Catholic sentiment, this Catholic insurgence. So he was still really going for it. I suppose by that time it had become a case of, well, we've gone this far, <laughs> we might as well try and salvage something. So Stephen, we have this plot that's unfolding in the Midlands and there's this this move to capture Princess Elizabeth and to use her as a puppet monarch. But of course, things are inevitably going to go wrong. We know that this plot doesn't come to fruition properly. So what happens to the plotters who have removed themselves from London and are now trying to, to take Princess Elizabeth? Well, I think at this stage, Catesby, as I said, was trying to salvage something. And what's really interesting to me is Catesby years before had been implicated in the Earl of Essex's failed rebellion against Elizabeth. In that rebellion, or I think it was really more of a, an attempt at a palace coup, but Essex had found that as much as he went out and tried to rabble-rouse, no one answered, No one could, people locked their doors to him. And Catesby was fined for his part in that. He escaped any more serious punishment, but he must have found himself in very much the same position as Essex had been. That the absolute fear when you realise, right, I am I am clearly committing treason here and no one's backing me up, no one's sort of rising to, to my banners. He took the sort of the conspirators who had fled with him to Holbeach House, which was owned by a sympathizer, Stephen Littleton. And the idea then was that they would hole up, that they would almost make a last stand. And I think they did this knowing that there was a high chance they would be, as they saw it, martyred. And another thing that has then given rise to conspiracy theories is just how quickly the sheriffs of the county rose against them, hounded them out, chased them down, which some people have thought they must have known. They acted so quickly, they must have known what was in the offing. But we ended up with this big shootout and yet more tragic comedy, I suppose, or dark comedy, it had been raining very badly when they were on the run and they took the genius step of trying to dry out their wet gunpowder in Hole Beach House, which immediately caught fire. It blinded one of the conspirators and it scorched some of the other ones. So these were walking wounded now before the government forces had even shot at them. What followed them was the shootout. Catesby was killed with the same musket ball, apparently, that also went through one of his fellow conspirators. He didn't die outright, but he did manage to make a good Catholic death by crawling wounded into what we think was a chapel and clutching at a portrait of the Virgin Mary, which gave him this iconic death. It's deeply Catholic, isn't it? Yeah. And even the fact that the musket ball goes through him and one of his fellow conspirators, it, that feels, it's so sort of religious, this idea of the body of these martyrs kind of being united in this way. It feels deeply Catholic. And to me, it raises some questions about the sort of reliability of that narrative. It's It feels quite romanticised. It, it does feel romanticised. It does does seem questionable it going through Thomas Percy, of course, who was one of the other big conspirators who had, actually it was in his name that the Undercroft had been leased. Both of them escaped, I think, more rigorous punishment, although Catesby's head was then separated from his corpse so it could be spiked. So uh, if they couldn't get you alive and humiliate you, they would do it to your corpse. The question of how the the state deals out justice to these conspirators is uh, it's incredibly brutal, isn't it? And while we have this very cinematic shootout going on in the Midlands, the whole time Guy Fawkes and a handful of the others is at the Tower of London. He's been arrested and taken there and he's being tortured. After his arrest... Fawkes was taken to the Tower of London, where he told his captors his name was John Johnson. Perhaps he thought he could buy time for his friends in the Midlands and that the plot might still succeed without him. Perhaps he simply hoped to save himself by keeping quiet. But his interrogator, Sir William Wade, Lieutenant of the Tower, 
was determined to extract a confession and get to the bottom of the plot. When Fawkes was searched, Wade found on his person a letter revealing his true name. The game was up. The details of Fawkes' torture beyond this point remain hard to pin down, though his two signatures, one taken at the start of the process, bold, steady, and the other afterwards, the letters, an inky, sprawled mess, speak of a man entirely broken. Worse would follow. On the 31st of January, 1606, Fawkes was brought from the tower to Old Palace Yard at Westminster, opposite the very building he had planned to blow up. Along with fellow conspirators Thomas Winter, Ambrose Rookwood and Robert Keyes, he ascended the gallows. After watching the other men meet their makers, each hanged, drawn and quartered, Fawkes stood before the crowd and recanted his crimes. Then he fell to his death, the rope breaking his neck and sparing him from the agony of disembowelment that nevertheless followed. It's so interesting that Fawkes' end is not in flames when we so deliberately associate his image nowadays with burning and with flames and with fire. The fact that he's hanged, drawn and quartered doesn't really seem to resonate with us. It's not It's not as, I don't know, it's not as visually accessible, I guess, in terms of the recreation that we do year after year to remember the gunpowder, gunpowder plot. Why then, Stephen, do you think this fire tradition, this burning, the bonfires, why has that latched on as part of this ceremony, this remembrance, do you think? Why it is latched on, I don't know. There must have been some historical confusion between celebratory bonfires, which were a big part of the period, and um, execution. James was very proud of this, something he had inherited from Elizabeth, which was Catholics in England are not burned for heresy. They are only ever executed for treason. Now, I think to the Catholics involved, the effect is very much the same. I mean, I'm going to be burned on a pyre or I'm going to have my guts ripped out and thrown in on a brazier in front of me. I, I really, is. do you want to be shot or do you want to be stabbed? But this was considered a, a benefit. But he, he supposedly jumped. He jumped so that his neck would break, which I think, good on him for that, I suppose. It speaks to to the kind of man that he was, I think, and the way that he he met his end. I mean, not <laughs> when presented with the choice of, you know, not to dwell too much on the details, but the idea of being hung, drawn, and quartered is very much that you're not dead after the hanging is is over, and that you're still conscious when your uh, entrails are being taken out of you, as you say, Stephen. I think presented with the the opportunity to to end his life sooner rather than later, he does take it. And I think it's such a dramatic but quite willful end. And I think it does speak to who he is. I know that pretty much straight away after the plot is is foiled and these conspirators are are caught and, and killed in these various ways, that the government... And I think, again, it speaks very much, Stephen, to what you're saying about this this narrative that James puts out that he wants to be in control of. You know, the government actually orders people to ring church bells in celebration and to light bonfires. So I wonder if, whilst the guy isn't being burned on these bonfires as an effigy, I wonder if those initial bonfires, which are a sort of tradition of of the 17th century world as well, and, and, the, and earlier we see bonfires lit when the Spanish Armada is defeated, for example, in in 1588. And I wonder if if that tradition, it all sort of becomes blurred into one, I guess. I think absolutely. Uh, You're quite right, Maddie. I mean, when Prince Charles, James's other son, arrived back from Spain in the 1620s, there were reports of 300 bonfires being lit between Temple Bar and somewhere else in London. It It was a celebratory thing. But again, this was pure James ordering big wide-scale anniversary celebrations. He had tried the same thing in Scotland after, again, that Gowrie conspiracy or Gowrie plot. He ordered that on the anniversary of that, every year bonfires should be lit and bells should be rung. So he, again, had form in this. He, he really seemed keen on creating an anniversary of Thanksgiving for his deliverance. Uh, he got it. 
Stephen, we know that you work on the kind of historical fact, but there is also a part of your work that deals with the historical fiction around this time period. And in one sense, it's kind of a two-part question, which the first being, what do you find is different about approaching this time, this specific time period in terms of the historical fiction you work with and, and the kind of archival history? And on a more personal level then, what it is, what was it exactly about this period that drew you to it in such a kind of visceral way? It seems to be something that really ignites your imagination as well as your kind of analytical skills. That's a really good question. And I've been asked it before and asked myself it before. So you would think I would have a better answer than the one I'm about <laughs> to, to try and give. What is it about this period? I mean, there are certain things that you can point to and say, this is what's so fascinating. I mean, there's the, the personalities, the dramatic events, uh, the debates, the, the things that we don't have answers to, like the the truth underneath the gunpowder plot. Uh, but then I suppose one could point out every period has interesting personalities and so on. For me, I suppose it's this is a period when the political and the personal are so close together. People are making political decisions based on personal di- likes and dislikes. People's personal relationships, intimate relationships, have massive political ramifications. So it's it's just colourful and interesting and bloody and gory and full of unanswered questions. There's lots of space to kind of paddle around in, but it does come down, I I really think, to the personalities. So for this episode, James, who is incredibly vainglorious, uh, loves himself uh, and yet is paranoid, uh, all of these interesting things. Cecil, who is cunning and sneaky and might know more than he lets on. Catesby, who's charismatic and charming and able to pull people in. You have all of these really interesting personalities that are feeding into this literally plot as in story and plot as in plot. And we didn't even go on to speaking about that, the conspiracy theory that uh, Queen Anna was was in on it somehow, which has raised its head recently. Oh, go on. Tell, tell us a little bit about this. Uh, this is a very recent theory that... Anna of Denmark, James's queen, who has for a very long time been accused of being a, a crypto-Catholic, having secretly converted, was actually a secret sponsor of the gunpowder plotters, wanted her husband and her son blown sky high. It's not true, I'm afraid. It's, it's not, <laughs> I, I'm not even convinced entirely that she converted to Catholicism. I think she was working hand in glove with James during their time in Scotland to sort of raise Catholic hopes and entertain Catholics. But it's a hell of a theory. It's, it's a yet more colour. I think I I agree with you in terms of, of possibly that's not wherever that theory has come out of. But but what it does say, and, and that kind of feeds back into what you were talking about previously, is that during this particular moment, this particular, say, 100 years after Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's death, before the dawn of the Georgian era, there is very much a narrative that comes from the palace often itself of good guys and bad guys, which is very compelling, both historically and fictionally as well. Um, and I think this particular moment in time, moving into Charles I and then obviously the the Civil War, there, there are sides to take. And that always makes for a very compelling history and a very compelling story. So I, I'm not surprised that it really kind of ignites that in you. Because I, 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 as a an 18th century historian, this there is something in the 17th century that's always been very appealing, that feels very visceral and very, I mean, yeah, dramatic because it's kind of been set up that way by the people who were living during that time. And I think it probably helps as well that it does now have hundreds of years of storytelling behind it and questioning behind yeah. it. So it's, why do the Tudors keep in the public consciousness because the story's constantly being refreshed and renewed. Why does the gunpowder plot? Because it's constantly being refreshed and renewed. So I suppose there's something self-perpetuating about about some of these historical moments and historical times. And we have, Maddie, do we not, a little bit of a potential hangover from, from Guy Fawkes's time in those warrens. Apparently there's a lantern that's associated with him. There is. And 
We spoke or is there? <laughs> well, we spoke earlier about, you know, these gaps in the archive when it comes to the gunpowder plot and the information that we just don't have. And there aren't there's not a huge amount of material evidence. We've got some, you know, sort of documentary evidence on paper, but there's not a lot in the way of objects associated with this plot. And yeah, one of the objects that just survive is supposedly Guy Fawkes Lantern, and it's in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford now. And looking at it and you can you can look at it online it just looks it's such a small object it doesn't you know it's not particularly well made it would be an everyday 17th century lantern and it's so remarkable to think that this very unin- otherwise uninteresting item potentially came so close to blowing up the houses of parliament you know the candle lit within it would have been marking those last moments that Guy Fawkes was in that cellar and he must have been very aware of that flame burning away so close to the gunpowder. What do you reckon, Stephen? Is it is it a, an iconic piece of material culture or is it a piece of fabricated iconography? I choose to believe that it is real and in some ways it almost doesn't matter if it isn't real because it, it carries all that imagination and power with it. Exactly the story that Maddie just told is part of this this little item. It's like, I suppose, like Cardinal Woolsey's hat, which people have written about surviving. It's just, here's so much history wrapped up in an object. It, it doesn't even matter what the provenance of it is, really. So listeners, that is your homework for today. Go and take a look at Guy Fawkes' lantern, which you'll be able to find online. Just give it a good old Google old-fashioned research methods at this point. Um, Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of After Dark Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. We were delighted to speak to Stephen Verappen today on all things 17th century plots and underhand dealings. I hope, and for me certainly, but I hope for you guys as well, there has been something a little bit new and new, just something new to be still gleamed out of of this, I think. And it's a a fascinating, fascinating topic. So thank you so much, Stephen. Um, Until next time, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review or a rating. Until next time, thanks for listening and sleep tight. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.